0: welcome to life point church our mission is to glorify god and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on jesus genesis chapter 16 beginning in verse 1. now sarai abram's wife had borne him no children she had a female egyptian servant whose name was hagar and Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go unto my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power, do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram.
1: We're uh, continuing in a series through the book of Genesis, and we're looking and examining the life of a character named Abraham, a real person who really lived, and we're examining his journey of faith. I'm curious this morning, on the journey of life, have you ever visited the waiting place I've got uh, three kids, five and under, and so we read a lot of books. I mean, a lot of children books. We read all the time. And I've noticed something about great children's books. Uh, Great children's books write in such a way that they touch the heart of kids, but they also reach the hearts of the adults who are reading to them. Have you ever noticed that? There's uh, this one book that I've read to my kids several times, And I remember reading it with my kids because usually as I'm reading, I'm kind of managing three kids on a lap, and they're kind of fussing a little bit, and I'm kind of in autopilot mode as I'm reading through the story. And this one story is the story of a young boy who's on a journey through life. He experiences several trials and challenges, and there's this page in the story that I turn to, and I'm I'm reading the page of the story, and suddenly my pace slows. And I start thinking about not just the story or my kids, I start thinking about my own life as I'm reading this challenge the character's going through. He's journeying through life and he arrives at the waiting place. Have you ever been to the waiting place? Made me think about my own life. Can picture the moment as I'm reading to my kids. and I still remember to this day because my kids had to poke me They said, Daddy, keep reading as my mind drifted off to my own life. Have you ever been to the waiting place? It's a place where people just wait. Waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go or the phone to ring or the snow to snow, just waiting around for a yes or a no or waiting for your hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting. It's the waiting place. Maybe you're waiting for the fish to bite or waiting for wind to fly a kite or maybe you're waiting around for Friday night. Is anybody living for the weekend? Hmm. Maybe perhaps for their uncle Jake or a pot to boil or waiting for a better break or a string of pearls or a pair of pants or a wig with curls or maybe another chance. Everyone's just waiting. Have you ever visited the waiting place? Come on. You know who the author is, right? Have you seen this book before? It's Dr. Seuss. He's a brilliant writer because he writes and touches hearts of children, and he writes in a way that gets up in our lives, too, doesn't he? He, he labels the waiting place on the journey of life as a most useless place. And I have to agree. I hate the waiting place. I mean, I am born and bred in America in the 21st century, this. Look, look right now, we are the products of an instant culture, are we not? I don't like waiting for videos to buffer. Videos should not buffer. It should be instant, shouldn't it? I I don't like living in a place where I have to wait for three cycles of the stoplight on Prospect and LeMay just to cross the intersection. I don't like waiting. I don't like it. I'm impatient by nature. And life is full of small moments of waiting but it's also full of big seasons of waiting. Maybe you're a student here today and you're waiting for that driver's license. You've been working hard for it, and you're you're, you're really waiting for a season of independence when you can finally be your own person. Maybe you've been waiting, though, through a, a really difficult season, a spiritual season. Maybe you're here today, and you have been waiting for years on a prayer that seems to go on and on and on, unanswered. Maybe you're here today, and... You're you're waiting on a, a wayward child who has wandered away from the straight and narrow, just hoping they'll come back to home. Maybe you're waiting on a medical diagnosis this morning. Maybe you're waiting on direction in your life because you've just been laid off from your job. Or maybe you're like Abram and Sarai, who have been waiting, by chapter 16, for over a decade for God to deliver on the promise of a child. The waiting place. I hate the waiting place. I'm not a fan, I'm not a fan, and, and Dr. Seuss thinks it's a most useless place. What do we do in the waiting place? And what's God doing in our waiting? That's all I wanna explore this morning. These two questions, like two halves of this chapter 16. First, what do we do in the waiting place? And second, what is God doing in our waiting? And Let's see it in the text together. So uh, please have your Bibles open to chapter 16 of Genesis. Let's explore and see what God's doing in our waiting. As we approach uh, chapter 16, especially if you haven't been traveling with us, we need to remember from last week, chapter 15 is a remarkable chapter in the story of Abram's faith. Do you remember chapter 15? This is like the camp high of spirituality. It doesn't get more of a spiritual high than chapter 15. Abram has a vision with the Lord of the universe. And he creates this covenant with God. And there's this kind of, um, you know, 4,000 years ago, it's really different to make a a contract and a covenant, but he's, he's cut open these animals and they're splayed in halves. And God meets him in this vision and God promises to him, look, my promise to you, Abram, is so good that God himself, in this vision, walks through the animals and God says, so be it to me, like these animals, if I don't keep my promise. Spiritual high. I mean, you would think Abram's faith would be off the charts. God met him. And the God of the universe is saying, you can trust me. I made a promise to you. That's chapter 15. You'd think Abram would be riding a spiritual high of the most most confidence and trust that he could have in God. Have you been there in your life? Have you had a spiritual high before? What could possibly trip up Abram? Spiritual attack, forces coming after him, adversity. No, something harder. Waiting. Waiting just waiting. That's all we have in chapter 16. In fact, the author wants to make a note of it when he says that it's been 10 years since they arrived in the promised land. 10 years. 10 years of waiting. (laughs) How does Abram and Sarai, how do they respond in the waiting place? I'm telling you, the waiting place will test your faith more than most things in life. And it's certainly a tripping hazard for Abram and Sarai. Look at the text in chapter 16. Sarai's been waiting for a decade, and in the waiting place, she succumbs to the temptation, and here's our first principle. She succumbs to the temptation to take matters into her own hands, but God is calling her and us to patient faith. That's the first principle I want us to see. The waiting place, it's a place where we're tempted to take matters into our own hands, but God is calling us to a patient faith. Notice what what Sarai does in the waiting place. Instead of patiently trusting in God's timing, she begins to scheme and shortcut God's plan and God's timing, and it makes an absolute mess of things. Remember that when you're reading in the Bible, especially historical narrative, which is what we have in Genesis, the author is recording history. This is real people like you and me with real lives. And I don't know if you've known yourself or other people, we're complicated creatures, aren't we? And we have a a messy mixture of lives of good intentions and sinful sidesteps and the author of Genesis is recording these people without makeup. No Instagram filter, it doesn't work. He's gonna show them as they truly are and there's three characters in chapter 16 and all of them trip up terribly, it's a mess. I mean, it's family dysfunction in a bad way. But remember, God God is speaking into the mess, and he wants to to guide us so that we can relate to these people and see what we should do in the waiting. Notice what Sarai and Abram do in chapter 16 in their waiting place. The author of Genesis, I'm gonna tell you this ahead of time, you're gonna see it coming. The author of Genesis has written Chapter 16, intentionally, and this is especially clear in the original language in Hebrew, he is writing with parallelism to chapter 3. And we can see it in the English too. Think of all the parallels of what occurs in chapter 16 to the fall of Adam and Eve in chapter 3. I'll highlight just three of them as we walk through the text. Look at what Sarai does. It's been 10 years, she's of old age, she's still barren, she's waiting on this promise, and so she begins to take matters into her own hands and she schemes and she offers something that's ethically icky and gray to Abram. Just like Eve in Genesis chapter three took of the forbidden fruit and offered it to Adam. So Sarai is going to take an opportunity and offer it to him. She says, hey, um, Abram, you know, we've been waiting around. It's been 10 years. I don't think it's happening. And God promised that it would be through your seed that the promise would be fulfilled. And he didn't specifically say yet that it would be through me. What do you say we uh, get you hitched with our servant, Hagar? I mean, come on, Abram. Everyone in our culture does this. This is what the world does. It's totally acceptable. None of our neighbors are gonna look down on us for this. I'm barren, she's young, she's much better looking, why don't you marry her? And this is the way we'll have a child. It's just like the fall in Genesis three. And then the pattern continues. There's, There's first the pride of Sarai who disobeys God's plan and goes her own way just like Eve decided to disobey and go her own way. But then there's the passivity, passivity of Abram. Gentlemen, listen up. Don't like this passivity. Look what he does. What does Abram do? He, the text says this, and and this means something. He didn't just listen like he understood what he says. In, In Hebrew, the word listen is like an idiom for submitting and obeying to someone. To listen to someone is to obey. And Abram, passively, he's just come from the spiritual high. He had a vision with God. God made a promise to him. And here we are one chapter later and the slightest suggestion of sin. And what does Abram do? He acquiesces. Okay. Okay, Sarai. Just like Adam in the garden in Genesis 3 was offered the forbidden fruit and had a moment to step up to the plate and be a man, and he passively takes the fruit. Do you see the pattern? There's the second example. So Abram, he gives in, he sleeps with Hagar, and the mess continues. You'd think this would solve problems. Sarai's got an an earthly way a worldly way to solve a problem, and it makes a mess of things. Now, you think Hagar's just a victim in this text, but she's not because when she becomes pregnant, it says that she looks on her mistress, Sarai, with contempt, as pride. Can you imagine it? I mean, Sarai's old. She's well beyond childbearing years. And Abram's just slept with the servant. And they're doing the household chores, and maybe you can imagine a moment that Hagar is washing the dishes and sees Sarai walk by, and she does one of these. Just a glance, a touch of her pregnant belly. Contempt, pride begins to well in her. She can have kids, and Sarai can't. I'm now on a new status. I'm a wife, just like you, of the great patriarch, Father Abraham. It's a mess. It's a mess. There's no makeup on in this text. But the pattern continues. There's one more pattern of what happens in the fall and happens here. Just like the characters in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, blame shift when they're confronted with their sin, so too does Sarai. Look what she does in verse 5. She's been dealing with the contempt of Hagar, and Sarai says to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. (laughs) Do you see the irony here? This was Sarai's idea. And she says, may God judge between you and me. I'm in the right, you're in the wrong. Do you see the blame shifting? We don't do that today, do we? It's been the pattern of sin since the first humans. What happened when God confronted Adam in Genesis 3? Do you know what he did? Eve did it. And God goes to Eve, confronts Eve. Do you know what Eve did? The serpent made me do it. Blame shifting. Happens in Genesis 3 and it's happening again in Genesis 16 and the author is intentionally drawing a parallel. He's, it, it, to the original audience, they just read chapter 3. They would sit in an oral culture and listen to this being read. And the Hebrew language, the repeated verb tenses, they would be going ding, 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 ding. Genesis 3. It's happening again. They're falling into the same pattern of sin. What do we do in the waiting place. Well, because of our sin and our brokenness, what do we often do? What do we tend to do in the waiting place? We trip up into sin. Our faith wavers in the waiting place, and we begin to take matters into our own hands, take a shortcut that we can control, and choose our timing over God's timing, but God is calling us as a people of faith to have not just faith in God, but a patient faith in God. That's faith. If we're honest and we take our own makeup off and remove our own cute Instagram filter, I don't know how that works, but it's amazing. You can look really pretty. If we're honest, we have the same tendencies too, don't we? What do you do in the waiting place? What do you do in the waiting place? We take all kinds of shortcuts, don't we? Maybe your shortcuts in the waiting place, like Sarai's shortcut, maybe it's a relational shortcut. Maybe it's a relational shortcut. Maybe uh, today you're in a tough season of your marriage. It's on the rocks, and you made this vow. You made this commitment to this person, but you didn't know it was gonna be like this. I mean, 15 years in, it's a mess, and you've been waiting, waiting, waiting. Maybe things will get better. Maybe things will turn around. Maybe they'll become the kind of person that I expect them to be. And then I'll be happy. And you keep waiting and I trust God and then eventually in the waiting, you break. Your faith wavers and you say, where's the eject button? I'm out. Can't I shortcut this? I wanna get to happiness, can I get out of this? We create shortcuts relationally. Maybe you're contemplating that shortcut today. Or maybe you've got a friendship, a relationship, and you know that God has called you to forgive. But the pain has been so intense that you're trying to get out of the waiting. I'm just sick of carrying this bitterness. I don't want to be around this person anymore. And so you're looking to shortcut what you know God's called you to, to forgive, not seven times, but 77 times, to seek reconciliation, and you hit the eject button. I'm out. I'm out of this relationship. Maybe you've done that at church. You've said, I wanna be a person that's committed to a people and all the messiness. I'm gonna belong at this church. I'm gonna stick through it and then it gets messy. And you realize and you look around and all these other people are sinners too. And it gets hard and so you shortcut God's design for a people to be peacemakers with one another and instead you're peacing out. You bounce to the next church downtown and you'll repeat the same cycle again. Shortcuts. These are just relational shortcuts. Maybe you've got financial shortcuts or directional shortcuts. You're in a career. You have been waiting patiently for advancement in your company. You've been doing all the right things. And then someone comes along and suggests an ethically gray way that you could advance. And so you do that thing that you didn't think that you would do, but everyone else in the company's doing, and you get the promotion. You shortcut God's plan and his timing. And it's it's just ethically gray, it's not black and white, it's just, but I, you see what you're doing? You're relying on yourself, these are too specific, aren't they? There's more. Trust the Spirit. Are you tempted with a shortcut today? What do we do in the waiting? We are tempted to take matters into our own hands. But God is calling us to trust Him with patient faith. Have you ever been to the waiting place? What are you going to do in the waiting place? What would help you make that choice in the waiting place, the choice of patient trust in God? One of the things that could help is the second half of this chapter, and it's what God is doing in our waiting. It's interesting that verses one through six of this chapter, there's no mention of God. It's just a lot of verses describing a messy family. They're all tripping up. Things have gotten so bad at this point, at the end of verse six, that Abram, once again, passive Abram. A few chapters ago, he got 300 soldiers together, defeated four kings, and rescued his nephew Lot. Flex. And by now, not only has he been passive in verse two, then again in verse five, do you know what Abram says? Hey, uh, Sarah, this is your servant, not my problem. Do what you want with her. It's a real man's man. Passive husband. Yeah, do what you want. And Sarai's treatment of Hagar is so severe. Consider this. It's so severe that Hagar, instead of living in this wealthy family in the promised land as a pregnant servant, she chooses, as a young, single, pregnant woman who is illegitimately pregnant, to leave the safety of this home and flee into the wilderness back to Egypt, where she's likely from. This is dire. She's desperate. Can you imagine? Ladies, I I watched my sweet wife. The first trimester requires lots of naps and the second trimester requires lots of morning sickness and the third trimester, you're just barely walking and she's alone journeying to Egypt. Can you imagine how she must have felt? So alone. The injustice. Abram slept with me. I'm carrying his child. And he just passively said, do what you want. Are you beginning to feel how ugly this text is? Do you see, there's no makeup, no filter. What's God doing in all that waiting? Six verses. The reality is In our waiting, God is a God who's watching. He's watching. That's what God is doing. God is a God who is watching. I want you to notice what's happening in this text. Uh, Often in the unfolding of this story of Father Abraham, God is this new god on the scene. There's all these little idols and other gods and and what God is doing through the story of Abraham is he's revealing who he is progressively throughout these chapters. If you've been journeying with us, have you not seen that God throughout the chapters is revealing a name of who he is, which points to an aspect of his character. And it's like Abram is getting to know this new god that he doesn't know. He's learning who he is. He's learning that he's a god of promises, and by chapter 16, he's gonna learn a new aspect of who God is, and, and the, the author wants to make such a point of it that he doesn't use this name for God once, not just twice, but three times the same character attribute is going to appear in names. Look at the three names that appear. Hagar is alone, she's pregnant, she's by a well, she's trying to get to Egypt, and the angel of the Lord appears to her, and here comes the names. This, this is a stunning story. The, the first thing in the text that, that's remarkable to me is that this angel walks up to her and says, Hagar, servant of Sarai. be a little stunning. You're in the middle of nowhere. Who are you? <laughs> that, that strikes me. Okay, who are you? How do you know my name? What are you doing? The angel of the Lord appears to her and he says this. Look, here's the, the three names. Verse 11, The angel of the Lord tells Hagar, you're pregnant. She goes, yeah, I know. (laughs) But then he says something she doesn't know because they don't have testing centers. You're going to have a son. Oh, that's, I didn't know that. Didn't know the gender reveal. Was it like a big blue dust? (laughs) Did that happen? You know, okay, all right. Maybe that happened. That'd be cool. He says, you're going to have a son, and this is going to be the son's name. Here's the first name. Staying on track. First name. You're going to name your son Ishmael. That's not, they didn't pick that out of a a, a baby name book because it, it sounded nice. Ishmael, it doesn't sound nice. Ishmael means, why? He says, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. The Hebrew word Ishmael means God hears. Are you, are you checking? God is a God who's watching because Ishmael, God hears. Next name, verse 13. Hagar gives God a name. She's the only person in the Old Testament who gives God a name. And she's an Egyptian, illegitimately pregnant slave woman. She gives God a name. That's amazing. You know what she names God? El Royi, the God who sees are we seeing the same theme? God is a God who's watching. He's the God who hears. He's the God who sees. And ready for the third name in verse 14, the very well that she's sitting next to, she names and she gives it this name Beer Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. God hears. God sees and he's the living one who sees. This name is in such contrast to all the idols of that time. These cute little golden figurines that were stuck in a high place and static. You had to climb up the mountain just to go see them because they don't move. But the living one, the God who's watching in our waiting, finds a totally insignificant illegitimately pregnant Egyptian slave woman not even part right of God's promise and chosen people in the middle of nowhere that's a living God a God who finds you wherever you are because he's watching he's the God who hears and the God who sees Psalm 139 where could I go from your presence Where could I run from your watching eyes and your listening ears? There you will be. Do you see how God's revealing an aspect of his character? That's an incredible, incredible part of who God is. You think you've run from God? He's the God who sees, the God who hears, and the God who's watching. How should we feel about the fact that God is always watching? Let's double check this. Is that a good thing? How do you feel about that? He's always, I mean always watching. Not just watching when you're suffering. He's watching your mess too. I love, I love, I love how God meets Hagar because yes, he shows mercy, but it's the same way that God often meets us. And Derek Kidner, he's a commentator. I love the way that he characterizes this this meeting of the angel of the Lord with Hagar. How does God, the God who's watching, meet her? Kidner says this. He said, God's comfort of Hagar's affliction was bracing rather than soothing. Are you tracking with that? God meets her and his comfort over her affliction was bracing rather than soothing, drawing her mind to things ahead and away from past injuries. What does the angel say to her? Does he say, you poor thing, come here, put on some slippers, let's get some Netflix and some popcorn, let's get you comfortable. You're pregnant. That's not, the the first words out of the angel's mouth is, Hagar, where'd you come from, where are you going? She says, and you know what he says? Go back and submit to Sarai. That's a comfort that is bracing, not soothing. It's not just soothing. And often, isn't this how God approaches us in our complicated mess? That yes, she's afflicted and hurting, and yes, he comes to comfort her, but he's coming to build her back up and strengthen her in the waiting place. You're going to go back and wait and not run from this problem. I've called you to submit to this mistress, and I have a plan for you. It's bracing, not just comforting and soothing. Maybe in the waiting place, you're looking for God to come and put his arm around you and tell you how hard your life is and how tough you have it compared to other people. And God comes alongside you, and his words are bracing. Come on. I'm calling you to trust me. I'm not here just to be a warm blanket. Bracing rather than soothing. In our waiting, we're often tempted to take matters into our own hands. But what, what is God doing? In our waiting, he's watching. He hears and sees it all. He sees your affliction and he sees your sin. And he's gonna work both out as he finds you wherever you are. This is the God we serve. Does this change how you wait when you walk into the waiting place? Does it strengthen you to know that God's watching? He's not absent in your waiting, and he's doing a work. Patient faith in the waiting place looks to God who is watching in our waiting. It's what God's calling us to in this chapter. Patient faith is a faith that looks to God who's watching and are waiting. These two paths of self-reliance and God-reliance is fleshed out in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. And in Galatians four, Paul is actually using this story as an illustration. Paul in Galatians, he's dealing with these Judaizers and, and they think that the way to be righteous is to obey the law. And Paul says this in verse 21 of chapter four. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law, as in the whole Pentateuch? And then he illustrates with this story of Hagar. And he says there's there's two paths to being this kind of righteous person. There are those that are the sons of, of the flesh and those that are the sons of the promise. In the sons of the flesh, he draws out the story of Hagar. That was the path of Sarai relying on herself to fulfill the promise. I'll make a way. I'll have this surrogate, shortcut God's plan. But then Paul draws out the sons of the promise. 14 years after chapter 16, an elderly woman named Sarah is gonna have a baby. And that's the son of the promise. That baby came by no one's help, but faith in the God of promise. And and Paul in Galatians is saying, we too have two paths. He said, you could be a son of the flesh and be a slave to your own self-effort, or you can be a son of the promise who by faith saw God working out his plan. And maybe today you've, you've chosen the former. You've said, I, I want to build my own righteousness in myself. I wanna shortcut God's design for salvation. I'll attend church, I'll even give, I'll serve, I'll build up my moral resume and God is saying, The only way. Do you see what he's doing in the story of Abraham? He is removing every possible human explanation of what God's doing. Uh Uh-uh. No Hagar. This miracle, let's wait 14 more years. Let's make you super old, Sarah. And then the world will know it was the Lord, God who works out his plan. He does not need your help in your scheming or strategy. God's not helped by your shortcuts. And it it is, isn't it interesting? She's been waiting 10 years, and I don't, this is implied, I don't know when Isaac would have been born, but it's interesting that because of this moment, she's gonna wait 14 more years. Ishmael's 14 years old when Isaac's born. Just saying. It's a little interesting. Shortcuts don't seem to accelerate God's plan, do they? Which will you trust today in your waiting place? Will you turn to self-reliance, taking matters into your own hand, in your own timing and shortcutting God's plan? Or today will you choose to patiently trust God in your waiting place? This is God's design and his call for us today. Dr. Seuss labeled the waiting place a most useless place. Useless. And after reading chapter 16, I have to say, I don't agree with that. Maybe the waiting place is actually a very useful place. Maybe God used 10 years of waiting for Abram and Sarai to grow not just faith but a patient faith in God. Maybe the waiting place is useful after all. I don't know if Dr. Seuss had faith in God, but it's it's interesting how he finishes his little book. Oh the places you'll go. And uh, this is a book, maybe you've seen this before. I remember I had a math teacher in high school. He'd always give this away as a graduation gift. High school graduates being sent out into the world. And probably one of the reasons it's given away for that is because of the way the book finishes. Do you remember how it finishes? He says this at the very end. I've got a, a picture of it on the screen. He says, kid, you'll move mountains. It's got a ring. It sounds familiar, Dr. Seuss, Theodore, where'd you get that? The, the trouble that it has when you hand it to a high school graduate is that it kind of rings hollow, doesn't it? I mean, don't you think, you who've lived life, kid, you'll move mountains, based on what? You got a high school diploma and now you're going to move mountains? It feels empty to me. I'm sorry. I, I, my GED does not guarantee that I will move mountains in life. What, what, what is that based on you, you see, some high school graduate, they're, they're not going to move mountains and, I, and every high school graduate, you're not going to move mountains, not mountains that matter in life. Not real mountains that matter for eternity. Those mountains, the real mountains worth moving will only be moved by one key ingredient. You've got to have it to move it. And and I know I know a better promise, a better sentiment and word that rings true because it's backed up by a great promise keeper, Jesus the one who died and rose again said this, truly, truly I say to you, if you have faith, faith, and I might add patient faith. If you have patient faith, Like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. You want to move mountains? You're not going to just need this book. You're going to need a patient faith in God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in prayer, admitting how much we need you. And we we confess, Lord, that we are often tempted, often tempted in life's moments of waiting to waver in our faith and to try to take control and steer our own lives. And God, this morning, I want to pray, I've been praying all morning, Lord, would you grow in us today. Make us a people who are not just a people of faith. Make us a people who are a people of patient faith, a faith that can endure long seasons of waiting and still say, my God is my God, and I trust in him. I pray for anyone in the room right now that's in that season of waiting. Maybe it's a painful season of waiting. It's been years in the making. God, today, would you refresh and renew them, come meet them where they are and brace them, build them up that they may have patient faith in you. God, we confess our trust in you. We ask that you would be um, a God who's watching us in our waiting. We trust you and pray these things in Christ's name, amen.
0: That concludes Life Point Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.